Have you ever wondered why some business people are more successful than others? Welcome to The Mentor List, a source of sound advice with your host, David Lewis. The Mentor List specializes in interviews with top business minds. Listen to their stories, list their habits, and most importantly, gather their advice for your career. This is The Mentor List. Hi, welcome to today's show. Today we're having a chat with Rachel Robertson. Rachel led the Australian expedition to Davies Station in Antarctica, the second female to lead a team at the station and the youngest ever leader. She managed a team of 18 people through the long, dark Antarctic winter and through trial and error, built a resilient and highly successful team based on the foundation that respect trumps harmony. Since returning, Rachel has completed her MBA, written a best-selling book, Leading on the Edge, and has presented it over 1,000 events around the world. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Rachel Robertson. Okay, so Rachel Robertson, welcome to The Mentor List. Thanks, Dave. No problem. And thanks for coming in today and really excited to listen into your story. Pleasure. So I might just ask, yeah, do you want to share with the listeners a little bit about your story? Yeah, I think... What, what strikes me about my story is it's full of a, a lot of these sliding door moments. It wasn't a career that was necessarily planned out. It was more seizing opportunities as they came along. And I guess probably the most significant one was after 20 years or so in a corporate role, I was just flicking through a newspaper one morning and I saw, actually saw a penguin in the, in the careers section of the newspaper. And that's what caught my eye because I'm thinking penguins in the, the careers section of a newspaper. And when I looked at the ad, it was for the Australian Antarctic Division and they were recruiting station leaders for right. Antarctica. And what struck me about it was that they actually recruit for qualities. So they recruit for resilience, empathy and integrity. And you don't need to know a thing about Antarctica because they mm-hmm. figure in three months of training, they'll teach you all the technical, you know, waste management, environmental policy, Antarctic Treaty, but yep. they can't teach you those qualities. So they specifically recruit their leaders for personal attributes. And that intrigued me because at the time I was managing customer service staff and I was struggling to get customer service people with empathy. So I was getting all these really you know, bright people, but when I put them in front of the customers, they just didn't have that empathy. And I thought, yeah. yeah, imagine if I could recruit for that. Imagine if I could do that. So originally I only applied for the job because I wanted to find out how they do that. I was intrigued. How do you recruit for that? What are the questions you ask in the job interview to find out? So originally, that's why I applied for the job. And then lo and behold, I got it. And it's like, wow, I didn't actually really want to live in Antarctica for a year. (laughs) So you're living there for a year. But then I I thought, you know what? I'd rather regret what I did than regret what I didn't do. And that's kind of been a mantra ever since. I thought, yeah, uh, I'd rather do it and, and think, wow, you know, I probably probably shouldn't have done this, then not do it. I just I honestly mm. couldn't stand the thought of looking back in 10 or 15 years thinking, oh, what if what if I'd done that expedition? Yeah. So I did it and it was absolutely life-changing because, I mean, it was a fantastic expedition. I'm down there with, there was 120 people in summer and then so there's a very busy job in summer. It's full of logistics and helicopters and planes and scientists going off doing their bits and pieces. Then they go home and there's a core group of us that remain behind for winter. There's 18 right. of us that stay for winter and we maintain the station and we keep things going and keep the lights on until the next summer. So it's a very different role in summer and winter. Yep. But it was, it was really about the team, the people. I mean, the environment's harsh, Yep. no doubt about it, <laughs> minus 35 yep. months of darkness, blizzards, it is harsh, but 
18 random strangers who I didn't didn't recruit, I got given them, getting that team functioning as a team when there's no way out, yeah. that was my biggest challenge. And then, yeah, when I got back from a year down there, my boss invited me to do a presentation to the Variety Club at uh, Crown Casino, their fundraiser. And I thought, well, he's held my job for a year. I had to leave without pay. And I thought, wow. the least I can do, just thank yeah. him for holding my job for a year, is this presentation. So I did the one presentation and in the audience there was a, a guy from a speaker's bureau and I didn't even know what a speaker's bureau was, never heard yeah. of it. And he approached me afterwards and he said, would you like to do more of that? And I said, you know, "What? tell that story. And he said, yeah. He said, we don't have enough leadership speakers in Australia who've actually led. We've got a lot who study leadership, but there's a real gap for practical uh, leaders who've actually led. And he said, and there's very few women leadership mm. speakers. So I thought, all right, I'll have a crack at this. And then started speaking breakfasts and dinners and working full-time and in, in between. In the end, it just took off and it went crazy. And last year, I did 150 events. And so wow. now, that's my job now, is travelling the world. You know, I've been, yesterday I was in Perth and two weeks ago, Shanghai, off to Singapore next week. So it's this crazy travelling the world, telling this story about leadership and teamwork. And it's all these sliding door moments. These just moments yep. that were there. And I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll have a go. Great. So nothing that was planned. <laughs> Wow. And so is it so is it the same themes that you're presenting on or like who is sort of getting you to come and talk and what are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, it's about I would guess a third of it is conferences. So a third is an opening or closing at a conference. So it's a lot of funny stories about what happens when eighteen random people live together in Antarctica. Uh, probably another third would be in house, so big corporates doing leadership training and I'll come in and offer an external perspective. And then the last third is sort of lunches and breakfasts and association type events. And yep. it's pretty much the same issues across not-for-profit right through to the big multinationals that I work with overseas. It, it's very similar issues and it's around uh, in such a, a volatile, changing environment as we have in most businesses now, how do you keep people inspired and how do you get a team working together? Yeah. And so that's I talk about some of the tools that I use to get get the team, my team functioning. And I, I, I don't go in and say, this is what you should do. I, don't, I say, this is what I did and this is what worked and what didn't work. And it's really simple things like for my team, our mantra was respect Trump's harmony. That, that was everything. And we, because we recognised that we weren't always going to be best friends. In fact, we, some of them didn't even like each other. Yeah. Yet we have to work together. Our lives depend on our teamwork. So it was how do we get this team working when, you know, there's a pressure to feel like we should be mates. And so we actually took that off the table. We said we don't have to be mates. You know, if we are, that's awesome. But if not, as long as we respect each other. So it was all about everything I did was designed to build that resilience in the team so that we could cope. And the foundation was respect. It was it was simple things like we had a, a rule called no triangles. And no triangles is just I don't speak to Dave about you. Or right, you don't speak okay. to me about him. If I've you know, got a problem with someone, I go direct to the person. I don't take it to a third party. And it was just a very simple tool, but it was just about saying, look, we, we, we might have clashes. We won't see eye to eye. Yep. Sweet. It's actually great because if you want innovation, you actually need diversity in your team. You yeah. need difference of opinion. You need difference yep. of ideas. But sometimes with that uh, diversity, there can be challenges. So it was about saying, okay, well, let's be respectful. And so, yeah, the uh, no triangles was probably our biggest tool in, in building that trust in the team so it meant that yep. it, we might not like each other but we've got your back yeah and did you did you find that you're sort of calling people or getting called out or calling people out on the triangle rule and it was it was really funny because how it happened 
the first time someone spoke to me and said, oh, he, he said this to me, and it was a classic, oh, he did this to me. And I said, do, do you want me to go and talk to him? Is that why you're telling me? And he said, no, no, I'm just, just letting you know. And I said, well, you know, if I don't talk to him and you don't talk to him, we're going to be having the same conversation mm. in a week's time. Nothing will change. Yep. And when we said it out loud, that was the moment when it crystallised and I thought, wow, that, I said, we don't have these triangle things. Why don't you go and talk to him? I mean, I'm, I was more than happy to intervene, but what happens when the, the boss gets involved or the leader gets involved is it escalates it and it becomes bigger than yep. it needs to be. So I said much be, be much better if you go and talk to him and so I don't have this triangle thing. And it started from that. The, the benefit for me as the leader was, as any leader knows, if you start getting involved in those conversations, they are exhausting. You, you'll yeah. spend so much time and energy in those niggly, whingy conversations, just listening, just go, oh, right, okay, yep. And, and, and you think you're doing the right thing by empathising, but, gosh, it takes so much of your time out of your day and so much energy, and then you've got to find the energy to do the real yeah. strategic stuff, and you can't. Yeah. So it was about partly my own resilience as well, and keeping myself sane. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, so maybe on that topic, keeping yourself sane and, you know, closed and confined spaces, I'm just sort of assuming, I mean, 12 months, do you want to talk through the difference in the, I guess, well, the seasons and then, you know, closed isolation with 18 people? So what is it like being in Antarctica over 12 months? Yeah, it's it's really, really different. Like, I loved summer. I love the summer. There was you know, over 100 people there. And so each day, my, my typical day would be working out, prioritising the science program, so saying which scientists, so do the, the guys who need to do their ice coring, is that the priority today or is it the people doing penguin biology who need to take blood samples from the penguins? Because I only had two helicopters and one plane and so I had to allocate the resources according to priority, you know, yep. typical management stuff. So I had to understand their science well enough to know, well, actually, you need to sample at the same time approximately every week, whereas you can go at any old time. So it was a real prioritisation. Mm. We also had a capital works program, so I'm managing a team of probably 40 trades, men and women. What, and what are you building down there? The station and, and right. things like the waste treatment plant and our reverse osmosis unit you because know, there's no yeah. rain in Antarctica. So drinking and, and water is a big issue. Yeah. Our, our biggest threat is actually fire. Like I thought it was blizzard. Before I went down there, I thought it was blizzard, but it's actually fire, and the reason fire is so deadly is that we don't have water to put the fire out. Well, two right. reasons. We don't have water, but equally we can't get out. Like, it's it's so cold. You can't land planes there. The hydraulics on the yes. landing gear freeze. So that's why we're stuck there for a year. If anything goes wrong, we're stuck there. And so winter is quite different because the interpersonal pressure is huge. Whereas summer, it's 24 hours of daylight, so it's exciting. There's enough people that if someone's annoying you, well, there's 100 people mm. there, you can yes. avoid them. But winter, when there's only 18 of us, you can imagine, and we didn't choose each other and we're stuck there and we can't get away from each other. And so my role very much then was around morale and keeping people focused and keeping them motivated. And, and, yeah. So and you're the most senior person. Yeah. Okay. So you're yeah. the most senior person yeah. there with 18 people. Yeah. No wonder there's a no triangle oh, thing because yeah. you're probably getting all sorts oh, of um, from day strange one. things. From yeah. day one. And it's partly because... You take away whatever people use to use to keep themselves resilient in their normal life. So whether it's, a, you know, talking to a partner or a friend, riding their bike, taking the dog for a walk, going to the footy, reading a paper, whatever you do in your normal life to keep yourself resilient, gone. That's all gone down yep. there. 
So you're on your own and it's up to you to monitor your feelings and emotions and it's up to you to keep yourself resilient. And for some people that's really difficult and we can't predict how people will cope. Yeah. We do do have some psych testing, but that can't predict how someone's going to cope when you take away all of their all of their support structures. So yeah, a lot of people didn't cope. Some people coped exceptionally well. Yeah. But probably four out of the eighteen didn't cope very well. And so yeah, it's about looking after those people but also helping them, you know, deal with their situation because yeah. <laughs> we're there, can't we can't come home. That's right. <laughs> well in terms of performance management too, whether it's rewarding good performance or sanctioning poor performance. I mean, I didn't have any tools. I, I yep. couldn't I couldn't buy someone a bottle of wine and say, you know, good job on that, you know, yep. here you go. Or equally, I couldn't say, uh, here's a letter of warning. You know, I'm going to give you a letter of warning for disciplinary reasons because so what, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so, you're outside. <laughs> yeah, I had to get really creative for yep. all these uh, ways to keep the team motivated and, and manage performance without yep. any, any external or extrinsic Tools. Yeah. Wow. And I, get, I imagine you've developed pretty strong bonds with the people in the room or maybe... Most of them, yeah. There's a yeah. couple that if they walked in here now, I would walk out the door. Okay. <laughs> because the hardest thing, as you can imagine, as any leader would know, that uh, the toughest part of leadership is that scrutiny. And it's about, um, you know, I was being watched the whole time. And so who I sat with and where I sat for meals and uh, was being watched. So I had to make sure I didn't have any favourites. Mm. I, didn't, I didn't sit... With certain people for every meal and so I spread myself around and greeted everybody the same in the morning yeah. and it's, it's exhausting but in yeah. that environment you can't have favorites because it's just yeah. too small and too close-knit so that the exhaustion of having to do that all the time and, and monitor my own emotions so even exactly. when I was homesick knowing that I can't just walk in and, and be grumpy and sad because I'm homesick I have to find a way to deal with that myself uh, which I had a, a diary, I had a journal. So my one of my mentors was Diana Patterson, who was the first woman uh, station leader in Australia. I was the second one at Davis Station, but she was the first. And so I spoke to her and I said, how did you look after yourself as a leader down there? And she said, oh, I kept a diary. And initially I thought, oh, I haven't got time for a diary. And then I thought, you know what, she's done this. She actually knows what she's talking about. Mm. And if that's what kept her saying, give it a try. So, you know, taking on her advice, I kept the diary and it kept me sane. It absolutely kept me sane because it, it wasn't, uh, dear diary, today we took the quad bikes out and photographed penguins. It was, this person's driving me crazy and if I could send them home, I would. But it was a, it was cathartic. It got the yeah, emotion out. out. Yeah, then I could sleep. <laughs> and so my resilience was greater because I was sleeping better. Yeah. But it really was just about processing my, my emotions and that's how yep. I kept myself resilient. Wow. Yeah. So what a big change yeah, going from, <laughs> did you say call center management or customer corporate, service? Yeah, customer service corporate, yeah. Corporate customer service role and then bang, you're into yeah. managing yeah. that, what a, yeah. And it's all, um, you had to learn on the job. I mean, people could, could tell me and I, I certainly read widely before I went and I spoke to former station leaders and I got as much advice as I could but it's just one of those experiences that you've got to be in it before you actually understand it and go oh yeah now I know what they're talking about but it was my biggest concern I had two one was anyone exploding with anger and the other was someone spiraling with depression because I didn't have any ability to deal with either of those things I didn't have police I didn't have ambulance Uh, I had no emergency services I I was in it was just me so I had to come up with ways of dealing with stuff at the source and, and let's deal with this here and now at the time rather than let things build up. 
Yep. And so sometimes I've got things right, sometimes I've got things wrong, but it was yep. all designed. I didn't have the luxury of saying, oh, I'll get HR onto that on Monday yeah. or I'll go on holidays and when I get back, I'll restructure that team. It had to be here and now. And it's like, right, what are my options here? What are my choices here? And, yeah, I learned so much. I think it's like 20 years of leadership experience, yep. you know, condensed into 12 months because I learned. every scenario, you're kind of burning the boats. It's like, well, this is going to work or it's going to work. And you just yeah. like, because you there's no other option yeah and if that didn't so. work i have to try something different yeah and like and and so the the journal was really good too in and it's a habit i've developed since then is that reflection reflecting on myself as a leader and looking back it's almost like standing on a balcony mm. and looking down at yourself and thinking how did i handle that and and what was my role in that and could i have done that better and so the journal was fantastic because i had no one tapping me on the shoulder saying you got that wrong and so having the journal to reflect in it and think, wow. And I'll, I'll give you an example. We um, we have a role called slushy, and slushy helps the chef. So you do dishes, you peel potatoes, you do whatever chef tells you to do. Yeah. And every day one of us has to do that role. As a little sweetener for being on slushy, you get to pick the music that's played around the station from an MP3 player. Yeah, we right. call it a radio station, but it's just an MP3 player. A couple of the guys from Melbourne and one from Fremantle decided that when the footy was on, yeah. they were going to stream the football live instead of music. Yeah. So three people came up to me and said, oh, Rachel, you know, the rule is slushy has to pick music, not football. I'm like, oh, radio. But then the next day, three others came up to me and said, well, no, the rule is it's slushy's choice. If they choose sport, you know, whether it's state of origin or footy rather than music, that's their choice. So I'm thinking, wow, well, there actually is no rule. It's one of these little historic things like what do you do so i don't know i canvassed all 17 people and i said what what do you reckon we should do what do you think we should do what do you think we should and then i managed to turn it into the biggest issue to hit antarctica in 58 years of expeditions and i couldn't work out why i'm writing in my diary in my journal thinking why is this such a big thing like stuff that should be big like the fact our, our ship to bring us home was potentially going going to be delayed three months yeah that's a big thing no that was not on the radar but this thing and everyone's talking about it so i'm writing going i don't understand what's going on and then i had this this epiphany it's like oh i know what happened with me the reason everyone had an opinion was because i asked everybody their opinion mm. and so i learned from that that my natural style is very collaborative very democratic but sometimes you've got to make the decision that's yep. your job and so i had turned it into this big thing by getting everyone involved when what i should have done right from the start knowing that i'd never get consensus knowing i had three people for and three against i should have just made the decision and ultimately i did ultimately i decided if you don't want to listen to the football on the radio in your bedroom turn off the radio Okay. <laughs> it was that simple. It was that simple. But I made it into this thing that lasted five days. Yeah. It's all people could talk about. Wow. So that, the only way I learned that, the only way was to, to write in the journal and then yep. reflect back on my leadership. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that, uh, that that's what everyone's concerned about. And yeah, three months. Did Were you delayed three months in the end? Or? No. In okay. the end, uh, they changed the shipping schedule. But I, I was, oh my gosh, I had my heart in my mouth when I had to call a meeting and say to them, we were meant to be coming out in October. Uh, and then they said, look, we might have to rejig the shipping schedule. So you potentially will be coming out in January. And I thought, oh, how do I tell these people they're going to miss their second Christmas? From, from their family. Some of them yep. were parents. So how am I going to tell them they're not going to see their children for another Christmas? And I was really stressed about it. But it was this control thing. They had no control over it. So they figured, well, I have no control. I'll, I'll, nothing I can do about it. I won't let it stress me. Yep. And it was part of the contract that we'll bring you home when we can. There's no guaranteed date. 
So they were really cruisy about it, but oh, the yeah, the football on the radio was huge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so you mentioned before uh, before we started recording about some of the contrasts and one of them's um, audio because we're sort of talking around some of the background noise yeah. we get into the mics. But yeah, do you want to talk through some of the, well that one and maybe if there's some other ones that you've just thought, God, I can't believe I used to yeah. worry about that or, you know, things yeah. that have been put in perspective. Noise is huge. Noise was huge. And yep. to live somewhere totally silent, like Antarctica is silent. Yeah. Uh, and it's a silence I've never heard, never experienced. Even camping, you'll hear birds twittering or you'll hear you know, a, a river running or something, wind blowing, but it's silent. There's yep. none of that. I mean, unless there's a blizzard, but generally it's silent. So to get back to a city where there's sirens and there's horns and there's just noise, 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 and it was just extraordinary. It took me months uh, to get over. The other thing that was difficult was choice because for 12 months we're told what to wear, when to wear it, what we're going to eat, when we're going to work. Uh, it's all decided for us. Right. So to come back, I remember having a moment in the uh, breakfast cereal aisle at the supermarket looking at this choice of cereals thinking, wow, because for a year we had whatever chef cooked okay. us. So yep. it was probably muesli or the chef might make bacon and eggs and that was all you had. That was your choice. So it was this overwhelming choice. The other thing, and I think this was particular just to me, when I got back I rented an apartment and it was one of those apartments where it had the security camera. So if someone buzzed my apartment, I saw them. Then it had a concierge desk, so the person would walk past and the concierge might stop you and say, who, you know, who are you? Who, do you? who are you here to see? Then there was a button in the elevator that you pressed and I had to press a corresponding button in my apartment to let, let the lift come up, the elevator come up, and there's a lock on my door. And it was only six months later I, I realised, wow, I've, there's four barriers between mm. me and the world, and they're not perceived, they're real barriers. And I'm like, wow, I, I, I reckon I did that as a reaction to having to be available 24 hours a day for a year. I had to be on yeah, call 24-7 right. for emergency reasons. So it was about me reclaiming my privacy and my uh, my time and saying no one's going to visit me unannounced yeah, ever. Yeah. You're going to see people like, oh, yeah, I'm like, going to get see. through. You will not get through, yeah. <laughs> you will only visit me on my terms. And I didn't do it deliberately, but I really think that was a reaction to having to be available. But that was another thing I learned, and I uh, was learned the hard way, but uh, when I had a corporate role... I always thought my time management was bad, you know, because I was yep. the first one in the office. I was the last one out. I kept missing lunch. I'm like, oh, what's wrong with my time management? Did every course, yep. known to man, did everything they tell you, turn off my email notifier, did my to-do list, prioritise. I did everything they tell you. But I'm still working these massive hours. And it wasn't that I was incompetent, but it was just I thought my time management's bad. It was only in Antarctica that I recognised that it was never my time management. It was actually my boundaries. And how I worked it out was I thought, I'm going to be a great leader in Antarctica, so if the team need me, I'm there. Simple as that. So I'm, I'm there if you need me. So they would knock on my bedroom door at 10 o'clock at night. They'd see mm. the light on under the door. And I'd yell out, yeah, and they'd say, they'd open the door and they'd go, oh, you're reading your book. And I'd go, it's all right, I'll put my dressing gown on, I'll come out, because I'm thinking, I'm there, yeah. you need me, I'm here. After six weeks, I thought, I can't, I can't do this. This will, this will mm. kill me. This will absolutely kill me. I can't be this available for a year. So the next time it happened, I was actually having breakfast on a Sunday morning and they interrupted to get me to sign a form. And I said, look, it was actually a permission slip to let them go and photograph penguins. And I said, look, guys, this, this isn't urgent and I actually need to have my breakfast so that I can look after myself. Uh, how about I have my breakfast, I'll meet you in my office in 15 minutes. How does that sound? Mm. Once I put the boundary there, they respected it. Yeah. Prior to that, I had no boundary. So they yeah. come to me in all hours. And I realised all that time when I had a corporate role, Every time someone said to me, oh, Rachel, have you got a minute? 
my default answer was always, yeah, sure, mm. even when I didn't have a minute. So yeah. it's, oh, you got a minute? Yeah, sure, you got a minute? Yeah. And I thought, if I don't have a minute, I should say, actually, not now. Can you come back? Yeah. Uh, the other thing, and I'm horrified when I think about this, <laughs> I, you, you know when you're talking to someone if they've checked out, you can see it in their eyes. If you're talking yeah. to someone and they've mentally checked out, you can see it in their eyes. I, I'm horrified to think how many times my staff must have come to me and said, oh, have you got a minute? And I said, yeah, sure. And I didn't. And in my head, I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, I've got to get these, this agenda yeah, yeah. done. I've got to get this yeah. typed up. I've got to get that to the CEO's office by 3 o'clock. They would have seen that. They would have seen it in my eyes. So I actually did more damage mm. by thinking I'm being good and going, yeah, sure. I actually damaged the relationships more than if I'd been honest and said, actually, no, I don't have a minute right now. Can you come back in an hour? And then I'm all yours. Yeah. And actually manage that boundary. But, yeah, it took a year in Antarctica for me to... <laughs> to realize that one <laughs> so, so you're in antarctica and we're sort of talking about this before about not not the withdrawal but almost like withdrawals after having such a adventure yeah to call i, I don't know if you call it an adventure yeah. but yeah i mean how do you sort of how i mean how do you get you know excited for what could be maybe slightly different life yeah. than what would be really exhilarating and adventurous it and was. coming back yeah, how, do you, how did you deal with sort of that transition? Yeah, it was huge and, and quite a few of my team really struggled, uh, particularly the ones in regional areas because they became almost like a celebrity in their regional towns so right. that the local media would interview them or they'd go to the schools and they'd talk at the local school yeah. and so they had this sort of celebrity and that was fantastic for the first few months but then it was back to normal. So they went back to their normal jobs that they'd yeah. had for the last 20, 30 years. I mean, I was lucky in that I got married and then had a child, which sort of distracted me and kept me busy. But, um, yeah, it's really difficult to come back. And it's it's you have to stop. I had to stop myself getting on the webcam and, and looking at the people down there at the moment because I could have spent the rest of my life yeah. just talking to the people who are down there today yeah. and watching them on webcam and emailing them. And it's like, no, let them get on with their life. I'll get on with my life yeah. because it really does get in your system. It's such mm. an amazing place. It's such an extraordinary place. And the fact that you can only stay there if you're working there. So there's still no tourism. There's limited ships that will go down there and they have to anchor off the continent, but there's no hotels or mm-hmm. accommodation. So there's no ability to go and st- So no amount of money can buy you, you know, a week in Antarctica. And that's what yeah. makes it so special and unique. And that's what kept me resilient throughout the year was that every time I wanted to come home, I'd think, no, you've got this opportunity. You've got an extraordinary opportunity to experience a place mm-hmm. that very few people do. So, you know, enjoy it. Make the most of it here because when you get back to Melbourne, everything's going to be the same. Yeah. And it was. But, yeah, coming back is really difficult. Really, yeah, and you do have to set yourself some new goals and some new challenges and keep, yeah. Yeah, keep your own morale up. Yeah. Great. So, yeah, what advice would you have or what advice did you get that you found invaluable, whether this is back in Antarctica or, or um, back here in Melbourne? Yeah, I think... The biggest advice I got, and I now talk to other people about it, is, yeah, it's about regret what you did, don't regret what you didn't do, and actually looking for those opportunities. But I think in terms of leadership, probably the biggest thing I learned, uh, if I can give anyone advice there now, the biggest lesson I learned, and it blew me away, my performance review was in Antarctica was conducted by a psychologist who met privately with each of my 17... Is this online or is the psychologist in, there? On a ship, yeah. So on okay. the ship coming home, we've got two weeks on the, on yep. the ship. Yep. So she meets privately with all of them and gets feedback on my performance and then gives it to me. So it's 
brutally on, like not many performance reviews are conducted by a third party right. so it's it's yeah. really yeah. honest <laughs> then she gives it to me and I sat down and I said right hit me hit me with it what they say she said they found you really inspiring and I'm like yeah what is that because I don't think I'm naturally inspiring I said what is it I said it uh we had this plane crash and I said is it how I handled the crisis and she said no nah. I said is it uh, I work these 16 hour days in summer no nah. Uh, is it I had this masterpiece of an Excel spreadsheet for our <laughs> rosters? No. I said, well, what did they tell you? What did they say? She said, Sharon mentioned that you knew the name and hometown of all 120 people on your station over summer. Patrick mentioned that his son had a school concert in Sydney and the next morning when you saw Patrick, you said, oh, Pat, did you ring home? How was Lockie's concert last night? Alan mentioned he was on kitchen duty and he's still mopping the floors at 8 o'clock at night. You came in and got a cup of tea, but you put a few chairs on the table to help him out. You didn't talk to him, you just helped him out. And I'm like, that, that's what they told you. That's what they told you after a year of yeah. my leadership. That's what they told you. <laughs> and it blew me away because what it taught you was that people don't remember what you say or do. They remember how you make them feel. And it really blew me away as a leader because I thought to be an inspiring leader, you needed to be very charismatic and a real extrovert and, you know, like a Richard Branson, you know, funny thing happened to me on the way to work today kind of person. And I, I envy people who are like that naturally. But uh, if you're a little bit more introvert and a little bit more shy, you can still be an amazing, inspiring leader because mm. it's about these moments. That's yeah. what people remember. And it just it was just blew me away. Then I thought, wow, I can do that. You know, I can't – I don't like being the – you know, let's charge out the front, follow me kind of leader, but I'm really good at these moments. And, and I think the other thing that helped me was I genuinely believe leadership is about creating more leaders, mm. not about creating more followers. So when I reframed it like that and thought, yeah, I can do that, I can create more leaders, I don't want to charge out the front and say follow me, but I, I'm actually pretty good at you know mentoring and caring for people and, and developing leaders, so I can do that. But, yeah, so the, the, probably the best advice I would give anyone out there who's thinking, oh, I'm not sure whether I'm, I'll be a leader in, in my career because I'm shy or I'm a little bit introverted. Nah, it's got nothing to do with that. Yeah. You actually can be a fantastic, inspiring leader because people don't remember what you say or do. They'll remember yeah. how you make them feel. Yeah, what a great insight. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, pleasure. Um, yeah, so the next question is just around habits. So, again, you can throw back to the Antarctic days and talk us through. I mean, you talked about the journaling and obviously yeah. that was a habit that, that helped you a lot. But, yeah, have you had other habits or um, that you want to mention that uh, you found really, yeah, invaluable. That... Yeah, and, and I do to this day. I still uh, I get to travel the world now and talk at conferences and, and speak at events, and every time, every time I've had an event, I have a habit. I, I reflect on, on the questions that were asked. So two things, I reflect on the questions that were asked so that I can get an idea of what people are interested in at the moment. So about, I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, change was a big one. Everything was about change. Mm-hmm. Then it was about mental health was becoming quite a hot topic now the hot topic is probably innovation and getting diverse teams because we've got five generations in the workplace now and that's just one measure of diversity but as our teams are getting more and more diverse people are interested in innovation so I have this habit wherever I am whether I'm on the plane or driving like this morning I had an event I'm driving home and I think right what were the questions but and then the second thing is how did I go I'll, I'll rate myself out of 10. I'll say, yeah, I think you did really well. Or I'll, I'll say, and I'm a pretty harsh critic. I'm my own harshest critic. I'll say, yeah, you didn't didn't do that so well. Or, you, you know, that bit, your, your energy was a bit low there. And so I actually stand on the balcony and look down on myself and actually critique myself. And I, that's just a habit. that To build this up, to build my own self-awareness. And I think it's a critical skill in leaders. It's probably the number one 
skill for a leader is self-awareness. If you know what you're good at and know where you need to put a bit more work and know what sets you mm. off, you can learn the strategic stuff. You can learn decision-making and risk-taking and assessments. Yep. But self-awareness is absolutely critical. And so, yeah, the habit I have now is to every single day, every event, to reflect on, on myself and how I went. And, and yeah, for, for notifying trends or seeing trends coming through, but more importantly, my own performance and to see how I'm going. Yeah, oh, fantastic. And what are, you, what are you sort of seeing at the moment? You mentioned innovation, but is there something else that's starting to creep in that you're, you're picking up on? Yeah, it's a real, I think that the, the thing I'm hearing more of now is that change is business as usual. Right. So I think most uh, companies and businesses recognise that change is now business as usual. It's, there will always be disruption. There will always be technological, technological changes. You know, that's just the way it is now. Yep. So how do you make your team resilient and keep them going and, and get over the change fatigue yep. because a lot of people are, oh, gosh, another restructure or another change or another merger. No. So it's how do you keep your team resilient and that's the pro- that's the emerging one now and also the diversity one around there's an expectation now, particularly in customer-facing roles, that you will look like your customers and think like your customers and be like your customers so you won't yep. be all a homogenous group of demographics you won't all be white or you won't all be young or you won't all be tertiary educated because that's not what your customer base is so mm-hmm. we're getting more and more diversity in teams which is fantastic yeah but it's recognizing that with that there, there might be some misunderstandings particularly cross-culture so different countries if you're mm-hmm. dealing across asia pacific you'll have different uh, cultural norms in each country and so just recognizing that what could upset someone in south korea won't affect someone in thailand or vice versa and so, yeah, that's the thing I'm seeing a lot at the moment is um, about that diversity and, how, and that's where I'll come back to that respect Trump's harmony yep. and uh, actually rather than just pretending to keep the peace, actually asking, you know, what, what's the appropriate thing to do here? What to get, give me some ideas, give me some insights, yeah. yeah. Hey, great. Yeah, so just a, just a quote, if you had a quote that you thought of that we could share with the listeners. Oh, I still, I, my favourite still regret. It's better to regret what you did than regret what you didn't do. And I truly believe that because I think throughout my earlier career, I moved around a fair bit and took jobs that no one else wanted, but that mm-hmm. was deliberately designed to give myself skills and broaden my skill set. But I just think, you know, you've got one shot at it, you've got one crack at it. So, yeah. and, and besides, we were talking earlier about having children, but having children is probably the only decision you can make that you can't undo. Yes. Uh, that's forever. But every, <laughs> every other decision, just go for it, have a crack at it. And if you... Go for a higher duties or a secondment or a promotion and you get there and you think, or even leave and start your own business. If you do all that and you think, yeah, this is not really what I thought it was, yeah. make another decision, you know, change, do something different. But the worst thing is to feel stuck because you're not, you know, you've got choices. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, great. And you mentioned before when you were reading late at night and someone was coming and oh, interrupting yeah. you, I imagine you must have read a few books down in Antarctica. <laughs> we did. Is, is there one that you recommend? We did. We read heaps because we had no um, TV. There's no television down there and there's no there's movies, but they're all, they're all going to be at least a year old because right. they'll come down on a DVD with the ship in uh, October. And so by June or July, all the new releases are out, but you haven't seen them because we haven't got the bandwidth to stream video. So, yeah, books is huge it's, and, and to get away from each other. But <laughs> I read heaps. But one of the books I've just read recently, which I loved, it's called The Third Space, and it's by a guy called Adam Fraser. 
and it's but I, I love practical books uh, I just love books yeah. that are really practical and this is a really practical book around how do you get yourself mentally prepared when you're going from meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting back to back to back and the third space is actually that time in between the meetings right. and Adam studied a heap of elite athletes and what he found was we'll take tennis in tennis it wasn't who was the best at the tennis stroke who won it was the person who mentally prepared in between each point right and that's his third space and he said whether it's going from meeting to meeting or from work to home that transition time that third space is critical and he said it's the three things it's you have to reflect on on the meeting or reflect on the day you have to rest even if it's just for a few seconds you know take a breath and then reset mentally, reset yourself to go into the next meeting. And it really works. It's just mm. about drawing that line and saying, okay, I'm moving from here to here. I'm in my third space. So coming home from work, it might be just listening to podcasts on the, yep. in the car on the way home or it might be when you get home, you walk the dog for half an hour, whatever you do, but it's that, that mental space to transition. And it's just such a simple, really simple concept, but I just love it because it's so practical. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be sure to link to that up on thementalist.com.au. And just the last question. So listeners that are listening in and they're resonating with what you're saying and they want to get in touch or um, find out more about what you're doing, how, how do they contact you and who should contact you? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to hear from anyone. So contact me through my website, which is just yep. rachelrobertson.com. Oh, you can also, I've uh, released a book, gosh, two years ago now, and, and the book was bizarre it was just uh i was getting the same as i was saying getting the same questions coming through yep. in events so i thought you know what i'll just write this book which is all these practical how to how do you get two people who don't get along working together how do you get a team you know when it's in a really boring kind of job how do you get them inspired so i wrote this book and then it became a bestseller i think in something like three weeks and so what it taught me was yeah it blew me away and it just and it's not rocket science it's yep. just um practical stuff but what it taught me was that people are looking for the how you know we, we, they know the why and they know the what they know what leadership is and they know why we need leaders but uh, or teamwork but how how do you build teamwork how do you create a team that functions so yeah so the book's available on the website and i've also yep got a, a video a 12-week leadership video program that's a low-cost one and that's people can do that at home if yep. they're interested i deliberately did it like that so People don't have to leave their work and, and haul into a central location for leadership development. You can do it at home. It's about an hour a week commitment yep. for 12 weeks. So, yeah, I'd love to hear from anyone who's got any ideas or thoughts or, yeah, jump on the website. Great. Well, yeah, thank you for coming in today. And, yeah, like I said, I just was so eager to listen in <laughs> and find out what 12 months in Antarctica does to someone. It sounds like it's, you know, the leadership growth there was just oh. there was no other option to succeed or try something else and then succeed or just repeat. And I think the, the really important thing is it's not like an Olympian. You know, like an Olympian trains from the age of seven or eight to get to the Olympics. And, and I've met a few Olympians at events and they blow me away because I didn't know what I wanted to do at seven or eight. But that's not my story. I was 35 years old and so I just saw an ad in a newspaper and it was just an opportunity that came my way and I thought I'm going to have a crack at this, not realising how much it would change my life. <laughs> you know, forever had a huge impact on my life and my career. But that wasn't why I did it. But it was just this sliding door moment. And if I hadn't have been sitting there reading the newspaper that day and I hadn't seen that advertisement recruiting for station leaders uh, and I hadn't applied, I wouldn't be sitting here today with you, Dave. So it's like this bizarre how life unfolds when you're looking for opportunities. Yeah, grab them. Yeah, fantastic. All right. Well, yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for coming in and for everyone listening in. Tune in again next week for another great show. 
you for listening to The Mentor List with your host, David Lewis. If you like what you're hearing on The Mentor List, the best way to support the show is to just take a few seconds to leave a rating and or comment over on iTunes. You can also find further information about this show and links to further episodes at mentorlist.com.au. Until next time, this is The Mentor List.